So in order to set this up, uh, the study of Ecclesiastes, let me just, this is going to serve, I guess, as a little bit of review, too. Um, I hope my daughter didn't change my password here. I got two rejections. Okay, there we go. Um, <clears throat> so uh, a few weeks ago, actually, I guess a couple months ago, we, we had this study called uh, gospel, uh, The Gospel-Centered Life. And as we were working our way through that book and that study, um, we, we kind of established a couple of things. One, this, this idea of God's gospel breadth, gospel breadth. And um, what I mean by that is we, we established that the gospel is for the believer and the unbeliever. And this is a hard concept for us really to get our minds around, I think. I mean, I, I still hear people all the time that when they say, they'll say things to me or, or I'll even notice it in the way that they pray that there's a sense that the gospel's for the unbeliever, and then, you know, you kind of move on into deeper, big, bigger, and better things. And what we tried to establish was that the gospel is for the, for, for the unbeliever, for sure. It is the power of God unto salvation, right, Romans 1. It is, it is the, the announcement um, by which people are uh, they're, they're confronted with the news of Jesus and so on. So it does, God uses the gospel to bring people into saving faith. But we also said the gospel is for the believer, um, from the standpoint of that God continues to sanctify and strengthen and build up and edify through the gospel. So um, the gospel is what helps us to uh, continually understand who God is and who we are in relation to God. And so um, it's really the answer to most of our anxieties, fears, you know, ailments, struggles, and so on is this, this beautiful news of the gospel. So we talked about the gospel breadth, and we've also talked about, we talked about uh, gospel forms, this notion of gospel forms. Um, the gospel is the announcement of what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ, and here's the definition that I gave in the first week of our, our gospel-centered uh, life study. The gospel is the good news concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done to put right our relationship with God and to restore all of creation in which we will forever enjoy that restored relationship with God. So notice the different forms. Here, here are two of them. One is, one is this individual gospel, what some people call the eternal life gospel, which is the good news that in Christ that we can be forgiven, we can be made alive, we can be reconciled and, and made right with God. But then the other aspect of that that we see in the Gospels and Jesus' announcement of this kingdom we see in the epistles is this cosmic or kingdom gospel, um, which is to say that God, not only is God saving sinners, right? That's the, that's the individual, we call the per, uh, individual, eternal life, personal gospel, whatever. It's not personal in the sense that it's just for me, but in, in the individual level. So not only is God bringing men, women, children, to saving faith through the announcement of the gospel. I talked to two people this week who put their faith in Christ in the last week or 10 days. And so God is bringing people to saving faith. That's, you know, that's the eternal life or individual uh, form of it. But then you look at the cosmic or the kingdom gospel, and that is that God is also reconciling the entire world, the cosmos, to himself in Christ. So that one of the benefits of the gospel this announcement of Christ's death and resurrection, is that the earth will be renewed. 
and the trees will sing for joy. All the groaning of creation, Romans 8, will be redeemed, putting an end not just to sin and death, but also an end to poverty, oppression, hatred, hunger, disease, injustice, all of the effects of sin. And so, yes, we proclaim the gospel as the good news by which we are brought to saving faith and by which we are strengthened in our faith and sanctified. But it's also the announcement that God's reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ. This is what Paul alludes to in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 and Jesus in Mark's gospel when he keeps talking about this kingdom and the invasion of the kingdom and so on. So it's God reconciling the whole world to himself. So we keep this good news uh, central in all we do. It is, it's our reason for hope, the gospel. It is our confidence. It creates our identity. Uh, it establishes our community. It fuels our obedience. It frames our worship. And so we could go on and on, right? So we keep it in front. But we have to say, in order to, to recognize, receive, believe the good news, we have to understand and recognize the bad news, don't we? And that's both on the individual and the cosmic level. So on the individual level, it means we have to recognize that we're actually not really good people who just sometimes kind of mess up. We're actually people who are broken, cursed by sin. Uh, we're, we're, we're unglorified. We have the baggage of the flesh. And so we recognize on an, on an individual level, we're actually not really inherently good. You know, despite what Oprah and Dr. Phil and, and all the, you know, sort of talk show pundits would say, we're not good people. We are actually people who are, uh, again, we're broken. We, we we're infected by sin. We have the disease of sin. And then on the, on the cosmic level, it means that we recognize that, uh, you know, of course, it's easy to see the world is really messed up, right? And you see, we see all of those things that I mentioned poverty and uh, corruption and hatred and, and evil and, um, you know, all of those things, oppression, hunger, disease, injustice, all of those things. Now, when I say that we're not inherently good, it doesn't mean that we're like, oh, we're just worthless, no value, not worth anything, you know, not, not that, because in fact, there's a song we're going to sing on Sunday, not this coming Sunday morning, but in a couple weeks, and it's called, uh, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And one of the lines is, captures this paradox beautifully. It says, two wonders here I must confess, my worth and my unworthiness. And what that means is every person as an image bearer of God is, is of great worth and value ontologically. The Greek word ontos just means at the level of being. So every person is actually to be cherished and valued, you know, regardless of your age or your background or your race, color, religion, family lineage, every person is of great worth. And that, and that personhood begins at conception. So from the moment of conception until death, every person is of great worth. So, but, but at the spiritual level, it means we have nothing of any good that we can, we're actually bankrupt spiritually. We have no, nothing of any good by which we could say to God, Receive me because of this. So we have to recognize, again, the bad news at the individual and the cosmic level. Now, here's how this sets up the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Ecclesiastes is God's poetic and unflinching picture of the bad news. So, lest we be confused, right? Lest we believe that the world is actually better, maybe, you know, maybe you live in, I don't know, Laguna Beach, beautiful place, everybody's rich and healthy there, and you, you, the ocean's right across the street, and you eat the finest foods, and, and, and you, maybe you think, oh, you know, the world's actually pretty good. Lest you believe the world is actually not that bad, and lest you believe that actually individuals are not that bad, here comes uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, to show this, this inspired description of what life is like without God, right? What unredeemed life is like. So uh, Brent Sandy explains it this way. The reflections of the sage unmask the myth of human autonomy and self-sufficiency and drive us in all our frailty and inability to find meaning in a crooked world in the creator-creature relationship. In other words, as we look at the brokenness of life, and we're, we're going to get into it. And by the way, so this is a six-week study through, through Ecclesiastes, which has 12 chapters. So it's not going to be a verse-by-verse study, naturally. It's going to be kind of an overview. And we're going to take a couple chapters a week and maybe camp out on one key section. But this is, this is sort of the, the picture of what life is like in a broken world, what life is like apart from God. The meaning of life is found in the creator-creature relationship, and that relationship is only possible through the coming Redeemer, whom we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. So uh, this, this Sunday morning, or I mean this coming Sunday, we're going we're, we're to be in a transitional week, a sermon series I'm calling Post-Resurrection Blues, and we're looking at the, the road to Emmaus and that conversation where Jesus says that basically all the scriptures are about me, and one of the things he says is that, that even the ketavim, which is a Hebrew word that means the writings, even the Psalms, the prophets, the, the, the uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, right, um, the Proverbs, they're all actually about me. And so they all point to me. They all bear witness to me. And so here the way that Ecclesiastes bears witness to Christ is it's, it's bad news that's meant to drive us to the good news, which is about Jesus. So let me give you some, some background information uh, as we get into this, kind of who wrote the, the book and when and, and why. Um, most contemporary scholars actually don't believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. In fact, the, the overwhelming majority would argue that Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I'll tell you my view in just a moment. But here's why they would say that, really for three reasons. One is uh, they say Solomon did not write it because the author doesn't identify himself as Solomon unlike uh, the opening of Proverbs. So Proverbs make it clear, very clear this is Solomon who's writing. A second reason is the, the Hebrew word um, koheleth, or koheleth is, which is translated preacher in verse 1. Let me show you uh, verse 1. Um, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word koheleth, which is translated preacher, it's a Hebrew word that doesn't really mean preacher. I'm not exactly sure why they translate it that way, but they're way more... Uh, more brilliant and gifted I am in terms of linguistics, but it actually means gatherer, assembler, convener. That's kind of what the, the Hebrew word means, which implies that a person collected various proverbs and wise sayings and put them into one book. And the other reason that a lot of people don't believe that Solomon wrote this, this book is because 
the tone doesn't really fit, uh, given the historical situation. Uh, it's not really fitting for a person who was reigning during the glory days of the united monarchy. Remember, you know, Solomon uh, was, he reigned in, in Israel during what they call the golden age, right? I mean, it was, it was an area of incredible prosperity, financial, agricultural, relational, political, everything you can imagine. It was a time of just uh, tremendous, uh, you know, prosperity. And so the argument goes, this book does not make sense. It would not make sense for anybody to write it during that sort of glory period. Um, if you remember, it wasn't until Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came along, and that's a, that's a very interesting exchange we don't have time to get into, um, where he seeks counsel. And th- this actually, it does fit in terms of, uh, you know, we're celebration, celebration of Miss Maudie's life and uh, kind of the glory of age and the wisdom that, that often goes along with age. Solomon, I'm sorry, Rehoboam sought wisdom from sort of the, the, the young uh, the young, the young heads, and um, and it didn't go so well. It wasn't until after Solomon that the kingdom was divided uh, into the northern and, and southern kingdoms, um, Israel and Judah, respectively. And during, but during Solomon's reign, again, there was this incredible prosperity, and even even for the most part, you know, I guess one could argue spiritual prosperity. And so some say, look, there's no way that Solomon. I mean, this is just too dark. You know, it's too. It's too morose. It's it's too pessimistic for Solomon to have written this, and so they argue that that he he uh, you know he wouldn't have written something that like this. But but it actually here's the thing though. It actually this this argument presupposes that personal misery and despair cannot accompany times of financial and political prosperity. Now we know that's not true, don't we? We know that personal misery and despair can accompany times of financial prosperity. In fact, how many people do we read about, even very wealthy people financially, who commit suicide, who are de- depressed, despair? So, so the argument that Solomon didn't write it presupposes that, that times of personal misery cannot accompany times of sort of financial and political prosperity, and we know better. So I, I believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes most of it. There are some sections that are clearly the work of, you know, so-called editor. But regardless, we're told in Ecclesiastes 12 that whatever wisdom we find has been given by, quote, one shepherd. So, you know, can I, can I tell you with authority, you know, Solomon wrote this part and somebody else wrote, no, I can't do that. But it really doesn't matter necessarily that we can pinpoint the author of every verse because we are told that it's all given by one shepherd. So, I believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life. And if you read, you know, as you go through Ecclesiastes, you see several things, first-person pronoun, I, which, which he actually says, as I led or as I served as king or as I did whatever. And so I'm, I'm going to, I believe that Solomon wrote uh, Ecclesiastes, again, or most of it, when he was, so you, 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 the story, he became king when he was around 20. Um, we don't know exactly the age, somewhere between 20 and probably 26 and he reigned for 40 years between 970 and 931 BC and we're told early on that Solomon loved the Lord first uh, first kings chapter 3 3 says this Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father but then look look at this this parenthetical this extra only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places 
So that's what, if you have any literature majors in here, that's what you call foreshadowing. He loved the Lord, but, but he never really purged, never really rid his heart or his kingdom of the worship of idols. And so then we know over time his heart would, you know, he, he you read First Kings 2, 3, and 4, and, you know, Solomon, uh, say, he's tw- say he's 21 years old and he has this huge nation to lead, and he's like, I don't have any idea what I'm doing here. Like, I'm way, way over my head, right? Uh, I've got a 19, almost 19-year-old, and, you know, making a sandwich for him sometimes is a difficult thing. So I know, you know, like leading a nation is a challenge, right? And so he's like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. So the Lord appears to him, and basically, this is sort of a paraphrase, asks him what he wants, and he says, you know, I need, I need wisdom to lead these people. And God is so pleased with this, as you recall. He says, you know what? I'm so pleased that you didn't ask for wealth, fame, power, money, whatever, that I'm going to give you what you asked for, and I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for so that you'll be the wisest person. No one who's ever been before you will be wiser, and no one who comes after you will be wiser. But over time, Solomon, you know, he was, uh, his weakness was women, as we know. And over time, he marries women from other nations, and they all have gods. They worship uh, the gods, you know, Moloch and Ashtoreth and all these other gods. And they start, to, they start to draw Solomon's heart away from the true living God of Israel. And then uh, 1 Kings uh, 11 says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they, they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So Solomon disobeyed God and the reason that God had instructed the people of Israel not to marry women of the foreign nations was because they would surely draw away these, the hearts of these men and, and entice them to worship the false gods, right? The gods who weren't really living, but in fact were gods of the sky and the sea and the clay and the dirt and whatever. So, so they would draw them away, and so God says, don't do this. But Solomon said, look, I know better. And he married, and he had 700 wives and, and 300 concubines and so on. And so his heart was turned away. And so toward the end of his life, he is um, probably at this point in his early 60s, he's separated from God. His heart has been drawn. And, you, you know, if you read, you see where he actually sets up places to worship and celebrate the other gods. And toward the end of his life, he separated from God. He wrote about the misery of life apart from God and the struggle to find meaning apart from the Creator. So he tries his hand at everything known to man, all the extremes. And very quickly, I want to just show you from chapter 2 the four well-known but empty pursuits that Solomon engages in. So 
Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, you, can, you can read it behind me too. I think, yeah. So, uh, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So the first popular or the first pursuit here, this well-worn and empty pursuit is pleasure via comedy, luxury, leisure, sex, and money. So he said, look, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, but I want to see what life is like if I just give myself to pleasure. And I'm going to enjoy every sort of pleasure known to man. Solomon, this iconic figure in the ancient world who was known, feared, revered, is on a mission to find the meaning of life. So he says, you know what? All right, I'm going to test the limits of pleasure. Come now, he says to himself, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. First on this mission is laughter, comedy. Now, comedy is good. Uh, Laughter is good. Paul's all the great preacher, theologian, and seminary dean says even among preachers, humor, humor is critical because it humanizes the preacher. In other words, the last thing I ever want to get up, do on Sunday is get up on this stage and have everybody looking at me thinking, now there's a guy who's got it all figured out, who does it all right, who just walks perfectly with the Lord, and he's sort of imparting. No, I'm up there identifying with everyone else as a fellow sinner, and one of, the, one of the things that humor does, it says, yeah, no, I blow it. I say stupid things. I do dumb things. I, you know. And so it humanizes the preacher. But there's great value in laughter. There's great value in comedy. That's not the issue, right? But all the laughter in the world wouldn't satisfy that, that longing that Solomon had for meaning and purpose. So he tried wine enough to clear his restless heart. And then luxury real estate, gardens, places of celebration and solitude. How many of you would love it if you could just get away to a beautiful, pristine place and no one could get a hold of you and there's no cell phones and there's no, there's, there's no Apple Watch. Nobody can get a hold of you. Just, it's just quiet. And he found that. He, he found the places of solitude and beauty and, and these, these, these gardens that were ornate and so on. But then he said, you know what, it's... It just still doesn't really do it for me. He found he had the most beautiful buildings and landscape, places to party and places to be alone. And he had servants to cater to his every whim, the most exquisite food. There's another passage in 1 Kings that tells us that Solomon's daily allotment of food. How many people do you think his daily allotment of food would feed? Yeah? How about 35,000 people? This is reserved for him. There's nothing, there's nothing that you could ever want that he couldn't enjoy as food. So he has, he has the food. He has the gardens. He has, the, the, he has music, musicians who would follow him around playing his favorite tunes upon demand, on demand, right? Billy, what would you have, some Iron Maiden or something? I don't know. Oh, that's Mark. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I heard, yeah. So whatever it is, so you got the musicians going, they're just, you know, whatever songs you like. He has everything. He has everything he could ever want, right? He had all the sex that his body could actually sustain, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And finally, in verse 10, he says, whatever my eyes desired, which is a catch-all for anything and everything he wanted. And yet, 
What's his conclusion about all this in verse 11? It's all meaningless. A striving after the wind. There was nothing, he says, to be gained under the sun. But he wasn't done with his search, so he kept going. Now look at verses 12 through 17 of of chapter 2. So I turned, so he's, he's tried pleasure. I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can, the, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw there's, no, there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, whatever happens to the fool will happen to me also. And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Why have I been so so very wise? For all of the wise, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Then he says, What? So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he says, I'm going to try. I'm, I'm going to give my life to every sort of pleasure I could possibly imagine. He says, what a waste. And then he says, I'm going to study madness and folly. And so on. he says, I still hate my life. Now, here's a second empty pursuit. It is human wisdom or really what he's talking about there is moral goodness. Now, let me explain. The wisdom that Solomon talks about here is moral uprightness. And what, he, what he's telling us is that he wanted to consider life from every conceivable angle So he decided to compare living a good life, the morally upright life, and contrast that with a life of human folly, right, moral perversity. He wanted to study, if you will, experientially the difference between right and wrong and and how to to live that way. So now morality, uh, for the sake of being moral, it does have some benefits, right? So just living a good life for the sake of living a good life has some benefits because when you live a good life, a moral life, you spare yourselves of, we spare ourselves of the consequences of living a morally bankrupt life. So where with every one-night stand and with every gluttonous meal and with every uh, drinking uh, occasion where you drink to, to excess or with every Uh, lie or mean spirit. There are consequences to all of those things. So he's not not saying that it's bad to live a good moral life. No, he's not saying that. In fact, he would go on to conclude that living a moral life is actually better than living an immoral life. He says in verse 13, there is more to gain in wisdom than folly. However, as he would also conclude, living a moral life does not lead to peace, comfort, satisfaction, nor happiness, nor does living the good life, morally speaking, give you any assurance of what's going to happen to you after you die. I've only had, I don't know how many people that I've been at their bedside as they're about ready to die, but it's only happened one time. I mean, one time in all the occasions where I had a lady say to me, she was 93, and she said, I believe I've lived a perfect life. I mean, I was stunned by that, but, but she said she believed a per- perfect life. Everybody that I met that was associated with her said, this is the most wonderful woman you could ever meet. And yet, as she began to, to approach death, she was absolutely terrified, terrified of what was next. She was scared to death. 
She was not, she had not put her faith in Jesus. She was not reconciled, and she was absolutely just horrified at what was next. Living a good life will allow us to spare ourselves of some of the consequences of living a bad life, but there's no hope for the future in just morality. In fact, there is a little bit of danger, I dare say, in living a moral life just simply for the sake of being moral. And what do you think that is? Well, if you live a moral life for the sake of being moral, to the degree that you succeed in your own mind, you're blinded of your need for God. And so, well, you know, I've lived a good life. I don't really need a Savior. I don't need a rescuer. I've done all of these things. Remember in Matthew 7, oh, this just hit me a couple years ago. I, I don't know why it just was so, it just meant so much. But Jesus says, he says, look, there are going to be a lot of people who say to me, that they're, they're, he said, don't believe, he said, there are a lot of people who are going to be self-deceived. They think, they're my, they think they belong to me. They really don't. And what are they going to say to him? Lord, Lord, didn't we do, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And, and what, what, what the point there is, if we rest in what, we're, what we've done in our moral behavior, then it's going to lead to uh, misery and no, no confidence. So, um, so Solomon says, look, this is not really working either. Um, you know, this is not really helping at all. We may, have, we may do a lot of good things, but if we rely on those good things, then our lives are going to be these huge roller coasters. So I, as I, I spoke this morning at Harvest Elementary School uh, at 7 o'clock at the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, right? They were way more interested in the donut buffet than anything I had to say. But it was, a good, it was fun. I had a good time with them. And what I said to them was, in part, I said, look, I tried to help them understand their identity in Christ. I said, well, you have a, look at this, look at this in three ways. Behaviorally, you have a really bad day. You have a really good day. Um, that's not what defines you. You have a really bad day. In my, in my day, you got her name on the board and a check mark and another check mark and a detention, which happened to me almost daily. So, but I say, look, you, you have a really good day. It doesn't mean you're cherished anymore by God. You have a really bad day. It doesn't mean that God's written you off. Your identity is that you're a child of God if you put your faith in Jesus. Academically, you get a, you get a 10 out of 10 on your quiz. That's great. That's great. You get a 0 out of 10. doesn't change how God feels about you. Um, and then I said, you know, athletically, you know, you, you, score, you score 25 points in a game, a basketball game, and, and, and you have 10 assists. That's great. That's fun. You have a game where you have nine turnovers, zero points, whatever. And I said to them, I said, I'm going to, I said, I've, I've never told this story I'm about ready to tell you right now. So they put their donuts down. I don't know. I said, I preached in 20 countries. I've never, ever shared this anywhere before. So you're the first people I'm ever going to share this with. When I was in the seventh grade, I got a rebound, and I put it back up on the wrong side, the, the opponent's basket. I shot on the wrong side. I, shot, I gave my opponents two points. You talk about embarrassing. You know, that's embarrassing. Now, you guys don't care about that, but they thought that was a big deal, right? And so, but I said, you know what? It didn't matter because that doesn't change how God feels about me. So if you look at, you know, you can say, yeah, let's do a lot of good things. Let's live a moral life, and there's, there's value in that. But Solomon said, you know, it's still, it doesn't do it. So here's the third pursuit that he employs. The third one is recklessness or moral perversity. He says, well, 
it didn't really work when I tried to live a good life. So let me see what it's like just to indulge in anything and everything that comes across my way. And so uh, the good life didn't do much for him. It was meaningless and empty. So what about a life characterized by what he calls mad folly, a life where no is not an option, a life governed by an attitude that says, I'll take and do whatever I want. Solomon tried it. It didn't do anything for him. So this is actually worse than the other way. About nine years ago, I had a friend of mine tell me he had three, uh, three sons, and the oldest and the youngest were in pastoral ministry. They were, I think they were like 25, 28, and 30, respectively. And the oldest and the youngest were in, were in pastoral ministry, and the middle one was just an absolute rebel. I mean, just, you know, drinking, sleeping, getting drunk, going out to parties, losing job after job. And I love this man who was telling me this story. He was probably in his early 60s. And a real, we both served on a board in South Africa, and I just cherished his wisdom. And he's telling me, he said, I got this one son. He's a pastor. He loves the Lord. He's leading a church. My, my, my youngest or my other son is a worship pastor and just loves the Lord. But my middle son, he's just out of control. I said, Don, what, what do you do? I mean, like, how do you handle it? I have no idea what, what to do. Why do you do it? And he said, you know, he came home. The other day, it was about 2 in the morning, and I heard him stirring around in the laundry room. I think he had vomited on his clothes or something. He was putting him in the, in the washing machine. And he said, I went down, and I said to my son, I said, what, what, like, what do you, I'm, I'm just on air. I just want to know so desperately as a person with four kids, like, what do you do? He said, here's, this is all I said to my son. He said, I asked my son, how's this working for you? And his son just broke down. He said, Dad, this is you know, this is miserable. I'm, 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 I feel physically ill because I'm hungover. I can't keep a job. I'm just miserable. And he said that was the moment that really brought, now his son is walking with the Lord. And, but that was the moment he just said, to, he said, how's it working for you? How is this lifestyle working for you? And he said his son just really, like, this, this is terrible. And so while morality, the moral life doesn't offer you know, hope for the future, um, certainly living a life of foolishness and folly and doing whatever you want is not the approach. Solomon, uh, the wisest man to ever live, says it doesn't work. Both the good life and the crazy, perverse life leave something desperately to be desired. So he turns to one other uh, pursuit. Here's the fourth one, work or vocational success. Look at verses 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Actually, that's not sometimes. That's all the time. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. We work, we save our money, 
and then we die and we give it to somebody else. And Solomon says, what's the point? I mean, seriously, what, why, why, am I, why do I even do anything? Why am I working? I'm just going to, to amass a treasure that I leave to someone else who's probably going to be a fool and just waste it all. So he says, why would I do that to hand it over to someone else? Work, he describes as sorrow and vexation. Remember, this is the word that Jesus describes Jesus in the garden. He was vexed. It brings worry and anxiety to Solomon. He says, if we're not careful, it sabotages the relationships that we work for in the first place. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at a men's conference, and I started by sharing with them, the men there. I said, look, I, I don't know if this is fair to you or not, but let me just tell you the, the assumptions that I, that I put in, that I brought into my preparation. In other words, when I was thinking about what to say to you, let me, let me just share with you some of the assumptions that I brought. And for, here's what some of those are. Most men give everything they have to their jobs and come home and are emotionally disengaged. Not every man, but that's the way it is for a lot of men. Most men secretly want their wives to lead spiritually. They don't really want to put in the effort to lead spiritually. Most men are paralyzed by a fear of failure. And most men find their identity in their jobs. And if they lose their job, they don't know how to even view themselves. They, they don't know how to even see themselves. I think I've told you this before in maybe a sermon, but I've, I've counseled two men over the last decade, and they both have said to me, I lost my job, and for one, for one it was two and a half months, and for one it was three months. I still got up every day, put a suit on. I never told my wife. I never told my kids. I disappeared from eight to five, and I came. I said, what, what did you do? I mean, these are, these are years apart. These two men shared this with me, but one guy said, I just went and drove, sat in the park, read. He said, I didn't have the heart to tell my own family I'd lost my job because I thought, what have I become? What am I now? So for, for most men, it's pouring everything. Their identity is so rooted in their jobs. If something happens with their job, they don't know what to do. Um, very pertinent, my, my son who's at Wheaton had a friend, one of my friends, who said, who's studying at Wheaton, and he texted me this morning about 6.30. He said, hey, I'm going to be in Wheaton today. Do you think Quinn would want to hook up with me and have coffee? So I'm sure he'd love that. So I gave him Quinn's number, and they ended up getting together at 2 o'clock this afternoon for about an hour. And, and Quinn called me at 3, and he said, Dad, he said, this guy is, like, really, really depressed. And he said he must have used the word devastated four times. I said, what, what's going on? He goes, well, he, you know, he lost his job. And, like, he doesn't, he still has no idea really what to even make of himself. He's just, he said he just kept saying devastated, devastated, devastated. This is the way that it is so often um, with men, and, and yet Solomon says, what a waste. What a waste, searching for happiness in work. He says is useless because the whole rat race, he will go on to say, call the great evil. Now, it looks like Solomon has a change of heart here. Look at verses 24 and 26, through 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, so there's a little, there's, there's a little bit of piercing here of this, this recalcitrance. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, here, this is where we reach really the crux of the matter. And this is what, by the way, Martin Luther would call, he says, the end of chapter 2 is the principal conclusion, in fact, the point of the whole book. The shocking conclusion to Solomon's pessimistic and depressing uh, overture is there is meaning in life, but it cannot be found apart from a relationship with the living God. Again, the point is not that any of these things are wrong, food, drink, pleasure, work, but that these things are meant to point to a creator, not replace him. So there are two different distinct approaches to happiness, right? That The world offers this equation, happiness by addition. This is, the, this is the mantra of the world. This is what every commercial is based on, happiness by addition. If you want to be happy, you need more blank. You need more money. You need a better car. You need better food, more sex, more vacations, whatever it is. Happiness by addition. And sadly, much of the church has embraced this, this gospel of moralism or the prosperity gospel or whatever it is. Now, Sometimes, though, the church, and of course we do this, this is, you can look at history and even redemptive history. Whenever we really respond to something passionate, we can over-respond, overreact. And so sometimes the church, and this is where, you know, sort of fundamentalists fall in this camp, they overreact. They say, well, no, actually, it's happiness by subtraction. So you need to be more spiritual, so you should give up, have less food, less pleasure, less sex, less alcohol, less this, less that. Instead, focus on, quote, spiritual things. But Solomon says, no, both equations are wrong. Here's what he says. We should enjoy the things that God made. Enjoy food and drink responsibly and in moderation. Go to a concert. Take in a ball game. Laugh a little. Spend some time at the pool. Do some landscaping around your house. Enjoy your job. And if you can't stand it, find something else. Relax in your living room on a hot afternoon. Enjoy sex within marriage. Enjoy the beautiful things that God has created. But let all of these things dance a little bit, Jerry. But let all of these things Point you to the God who supplies every good thing. Let these good things that God has given us foster gratitude, not independence. Let these good things never become ultimate things, but let them remind us of the ultimate thing, God and His beauty and His glory. And the problem arises, as we're going to see as we work our way through this, this book, The problem arises when we attempt to find our happiness apart from God. So Solomon says, look, don't live for the satisfaction, that the the fleeting satisfaction that these things can bring. Live for the pleasure and joy that comes with being in a right relationship with God. Live for the joy that comes with knowing your Creator, finding all in all in Him. That's the pathway to true and lasting joy. And that pathway is only possible through the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that sets the stage for this study in Ecclesiastes. So 
Uh, I got about 90 seconds. Uh, if anybody has any questions or comments or any thoughts, Marty, you're just ready to get to that birthday cake, aren't you? <laughs> uh, any? Okay. Uh, well, so we're gonna. So that's. So we'll take five more weeks working our way, th- way through Ecclesiastes, and you know, despite the the dark uh, tone of the book, it's actually a very hopeful book because it says, apart from God, emptiness, despair, loneliness, unhappiness, and the endless striving after the wind. But with God, there's actually pleasures and joy that cannot be enjoyed by anybody who doesn't know God. So let's pray.